Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 14, 16 through 18, and 25 through 33. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money from her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chain came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, extra Tanya. Goodness. Give Tanya a round of applause. Look at this. Well done. Thank you so much. Uh, for those of you that have been with us over the last couple of weeks, we have been um, in a series that we've called uh, DNA. It is our opportunity to uh, come back to and re-engage with some of the core ideas that make Redeemer East Harlem who we are. Uh, one of the things that we've recognized is part of the way that the Lord has blessed us over the course of these last several very difficult years uh, is that He's grown us in many different ways. Uh, and as a result of that, there are many who were not able to be part of some of those initial um, beginning stages of our church plant uh, nearly three years ago. And just a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating uh, our three-year birthday, as it were. Uh, and so we want to take this fall to re-engage some of those ideas, uh, because one of the things that we have a conviction uh, about is that though the world is completely different than it was back in 2019 when we first started, uh, we don't believe that our mission our vision, our values, that any of those things have changed. Uh, and so we want to come back to those. And over the last two weeks, what we've done is we slowly went through our vision, uh, that vision that Pastor Abe killed just a second ago, that we are a church that is both in and for East Harlem, that we might both know and show the love of God in Christ. Uh, and one of the ways that we, or the many ways that we go about actually accomplishing that vision uh, is through what we call our core values. 
Our core values as a church are these. Uh, We believe in personal conversion, spiritual formation, community involvement, mercy and justice, and pursuits of unity. Those are the five different things that have foundationally made REH uh, who we are. And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at each one of those individually so that we can have a better understanding of what we mean by each of them. And today, we're going to be focusing in on what do we mean when we say personal conversion. How does a belief in personal conversion help us be a church that is in and for East Harlem that we might know and show the great love of God in Christ. Let me read for you uh, just the sentence uh, or two that we, we use uh, concerning personal conversion. And by the way, I should also say, if you want to get a, a full deep dive into these ideas, you can go to our website. We have them uh, more fully uh, articulated there. Uh, but here's what we mean by personal conversion. We, uh, we believe that we are a church that cares about people personally knowing the love of God in Christ. We want to connect people to God so that their whole lives might be converted and changed by the gospel. Uh, This conviction and uh, the tangible ways by which we show it is what we believe to be faithful gospel ministry. Um, You can't understand who Jesus was, the work of Jesus. You can't understand uh, the New Testament writers. You can't understand the ongoing work of the church without understanding, first and foremost, that the gospel changes people's lives. Now, if you're here and you are a Christian, I want you to hear that the gospel is for you because it changes us from glory to glory. The the gospel is the only message that the Christian faith has to offer. It's the only hope of the Christian faith. And that gospel message is for those of you who might be here and are Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're trying to assess where you might fit uh, in your relationship to Jesus, I want you to know that the gospel is also for you, that you might know the fullness of God's love for you in Jesus. I want us all to see today the extent to which the gospel is for everyone. And here in Acts 16 we get a bit of a a microcosm of the extent to which that is true. In this passage, we see both the breadth and the depth of how Christ changes lives. Uh, And we also see why the gospel is the only hope that we possess. The only hope that the Christian has to offer to the world. And to see how this is the case, uh, I want to look at three, the three mini-stories that, are, uh, that were included in our reading from Acts 16. Specifically, they're stories that focus on three people. Uh, what we just heard read is we, we heard uh, the story of Lydia. We heard the story of a slave girl. And we heard the story of a jailer. Now, each of these uh, three people were people that Paul and Silas met on their missionary journey to Macedonia. Uh, And these these, uh, short little stories actually show us the far reaches of the gospel message by showing us the three things that we're going to look at today through those stories. We're going to see that the gospel is for all peoples, that the gospel is for all people, and that the gospel is for you. Okay, so first, the gospel is for all peoples. Uh, you know, for me personally, I know this isn't maybe the case for everyone, but for me personally, one of the most compelling arguments for the Christian faith is the way that the gospel transcends all cultures and nationalities. 
Uh, I come from uh, a very diverse family background, ethnically and culturally. It's part of the reason why many of you would love to try to pinpoint exactly like what I am, but you can't quite get there. Uh, it's because my fa- I have a very diverse, uh, eclectic kind of family. Uh, so I've seen up close and personal how the gospel impacts people's lives from different cultures. Um, but also just in my own academic journey and in college and in grad school, I was an intercultural studies major uh, and studied something known as missiology, which is a field that uh, incorporates anthropology and sociology and comparative religion and tries to understand how uh, communication of the gospel happens in a variety of different uh, contexts. And so I have seen both personally and have also studied uh, the applicability of the gospel to all peoples and cultures. And from my vantage point, again, this is one of the things that's most compelling to me. It's a powerful affirmation of the gospel in that the gospel applies to so many different cultures. Look at, uh, in our passage in particular, a few things that we, um, that we see. Paul and Silas, again, they meet these three different people in Acts 16. Uh, and consider who these people are. All right, so you have Lydia. Uh, it says that she's from Thyatira, which means that she was Asian. Uh, you have a slave girl. Uh, and in verse 16, interestingly, uh, verse 16 is translated elsewhere, is that she had a spirit of divination. Now, that word divination is actually often referring to uh, the Greek religion of Apollo. And so because of that, we can, we can uh, guesstimate that the girl is likely Greek. And then you have the jailer, who is almost certainly Roman. These three people in our story come from different cultures and different experiences, and here's why that matters. Because compared to every other major theological or philosophical ideology, the Christian faith has no cultural ties, but rather easily applies to all peoples and cultures and locales. Almost all other world religions and philosophies are centered on specific parts of the world or culture. This is an example. Islam is still almost entirely centered on the culture of the Middle East. Even to be a good Muslim is to know Arabic. Uh, Hinduism is still centered in India. Nearly 95% of all Hindus still live in India. Buddhism, which has certainly made roads in the West, culturally it's almost entirely still tied to Asian cultures. When you think about other uh, philosophies and ideas, even humanism and secularism, which often you know, assumes itself to be the only true objective look out into the world. It's fascinating that even humanism and secularism are very culturally captive to the culture of the West. But Christianity is not itself a culture, nor is it culturally captive to any one culture. The gospel is uniquely able to weave itself into and be expressed by all cultures because it is for all peoples, which is why it has spread around the world the way that it has. You know, the Christian church is the most diverse body of people that the world has ever known, which is a powerful affirmation, again, to the power of the gospel of Jesus. There are billions of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, not one nation, not one tribe, or one tongue, every tribe, nation, and tongue, doing exactly what we're doing right now 
just lifting up the name of Jesus. And doing so in their own language, with their own cultural expressions. I have not seen or studied another religion or philosophy or worldview that comes close to that kind of unity. And it is not, again, not tied to any one culture, people, group, or ethnicity. I mean, it's a religion that, yes, started in the Middle East, but then spread eastward, spread uh, west into Europe and in other parts of the West, and is now centered in places that were once uh, thought to be unchristian. Places in the global south, like South and Central America, Asia, and Africa. And not to belabor this point, but just consider where the center of Christianity will be by 2050. When often now, when people think about Christianity, uh, especially if you're from the West, you tend to think about Christianity as being from the West, which is a completely wrong understanding of it historically. But by 2050, the cultural center, I'm sorry, the, the, the center of Christianity, rather, will actually be in Africa. And this is a, a bit of a side note, but some have actually wrongly assumed that African Christianity, being the new center, is the result of historic colonialism that maybe brought Christianity to, um, to the uh, continent. But here's why that's a very wrong uh, assumption. Uh, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, but all of this is for free for you today. Uh, Christianity in Africa is not the result of colonizers. The, the explosion of Christianity is not the result of Western powers bringing Christianity to the continent. I mean, first, just consider the most enduring churches in the world are African churches in Ethiopia. They've been around since nearly the beginning. African Christianity existed a thousand plus years before colonialism ever came to uh, the continent from European powers. Also, even though in some places... Christianity came as a result of colonialism in Africa. It wasn't until the end of colonialism that Christianity really spread across the continent. Uh, Laman Sane, he's a professor at uh, Yale. He's a native of Gambia. In his book, Whose Religion is Christianity? Uh, he shows how uh, colonialism was a stumbling block that once removed actually created enormous expansion of the faith throughout Africa, and he gave several different reasons as to why. One reason that he gave is that once European missionaries and the colonial powers left or reduced their influence, they actually saw a huge increase in Bible translations into the African languages, which greatly expanded across the continent. Another thing that he says is uh, after the colonial powers left, African peoples had much greater agency uh, and so Africans stepped up without the disadvantage of that foreign compromise. But then the third thing that he said that I find to be most striking is that Christianity actually thrived in places where indigenous religions had remained strong through colonialism. This meant that indigenous peoples were able to receive the gospel for what it was, a message from God and not a message from the colonizers. That mattered because colonizers don't care about your culture. They care about assimilation. But Jesus cares about your culture. Jesus cares about the ways in which you have been uniquely shaped. The unique experiences that people experience within particular cultures. In other words, the African explosion of Christianity was not because of colonial powers. Rather, it was because the gospel message 
was woven into the culture, the, the cultural fabric of the African people. Their language, their customs, their cultural expressions were honored. The gospel is a message that is not going to be captive to any one culture or people group because it is a message for all peoples. There is nothing close to the Christian church in its diversity and the longevity of that diversity. And if a religion or idea is to be universally true, it needs to be universally applicable. And Christianity is uniquely positioned because it is a message for all peoples, regardless of ethnicity or language or country of origin or culture. So we need to see the extent to which the gospel is for all people. But we also need to see that it's not just for all peoples, but it's actually for all people. Like on an individual basis, which is our second point here. Uh, What do I mean by that? Uh, Again, the gospel is not just this transcendent uh, message for all ethnicities and nations, but it's also for very different types of people. People across the entire spectrum of experiences. Consider, again, the three little mini-stories that we have. First, consider Lydia. Some interesting facts that we know about her. In verse 14, uh, it says that she was uh, a dealer of purple cloth and that she owned her own business. And then in verse 15, it tells us that she obviously owned a house. Now, purple dye was very expensive, and it was reserved only for the elites. So that meant that Lydia was likely very wealthy. Lydia would have been a wealthy fashion designer. But Paul and Silas, they encounter her, and they find her at the river listening to Scripture being read. Uh, She was a god Worshipper, which was essentially a non-Jewish convert who worshipped Yahweh. That means that she was quite religious and that she was seeking truth in the Jewish scriptures. And I wonder, when you pull all that together, put all that together, do you know anyone like that? Do you maybe identify with some of that? A wealthy, successful individual who has attained more than most could dream, yet in the end, there's still a searching there's still a longing for something to satisfy. And what's beautiful about Lydia's story is that God sees her and says, this gospel is for you, Lydia. You wealthy, successful, spiritually seeking Lydia. Another person that we see here impacted by the power of the gospel is this enslaved girl. She was a young woman who was both spiritually and physically oppressed. She was spiritually oppressed by an evil spirit, uh, and she was physically oppressed by her captors who were gaining profits off of her. Until, of course, in verse 18, when Paul commands the evil spirit out in the name of Jesus. Uh, And immediately, what we see is extraordinary. By the the power of Jesus' name, he transforms her, and immediately the girl was liberated from the spirit that tormented her. And most interesting, this liberation was not just a spiritual liberation, but it also resulted in a physical liberation as well for her. We know this is true because her oppressors were furious that they could no longer profit off of this this girl. Oppressors have a way of freaking out when they begin to lose control, and they do. And so what I find to be interesting between Lydia and this enslaved girl... But the gospel was for both of them. The gospel was for wealthy Lydia, 
but it was also for this used and marginalized enslaved girl. You know, the gospel is not just for the rich and for the powerful. The gospel is also for those who are suffering under the burden of addiction. It is for those who are being trafficked. It is for those who are enslaved, those who are tormented in their souls. It is for those abused and used by others who care only about their personal gain or pleasure. The gospel is for the marginalized and the oppressed. And this is a a little bit of a side note. Again, you're going to get this for free. But this informs how Christians ought to view oppression and injustice. I mean, the girl was set free both spiritually and physically by the power of the gospel, the message of Jesus. Because the nature of sin is that physical oppression is always interwoven with spiritual oppression. Always. For Christians, fighting physical oppression means a spiritual battle as well. Why? Because oppression and injustice do two things, both of which are fundamentally a spiritual crisis. First thing is that Christian theology says that all people at all stages of life possess the image of God in them. They have intrinsic worth and value, and oppression denies the image of God in others. That's a spiritual problem, spiritual battle. But the other thing is that when a person puts themselves into the uh, position of oppressor, right, where, they, where they believe themselves to be some kind of godlike being seated on a throne doling out judgment or determining who is of greater or lower stature based on what they deem to be better or worse, higher or lower, they've ultimately put themselves into the place of God himself, which is idolatrous. Any attempt to create that kind of hierarchy of value is idolatry. That, again, is a spiritual issue. And so when we fight physical oppression, when we stand for the marginalized and for the used, when we work against this kind of spiritual idolatry, it is certainly spiritual, but it is also going to result in physical manifestations. Now, as an example, when... abolitionists fought shadow slavery. They were fighting a spiritual battle. When Diedrich Bonhoeffer famously stood against the Nazi regime, he was fighting a spiritual battle. When the civil rights activists fought the oppressions of segregation and Jim Crow, that was a spiritual battle. Those fighting sex slavery and human trafficking right now are fighting spiritual battles. In all places where the image of God is denied in others, a spiritual battle is being waged until Jesus returns and permanently crushes the head of that oppression. Christians must always be champions of the weak, the powerless, the unloved, and the unseen. God is saying to this enslaved girl, you may be oppressed, you may be marginalized, you may be in the position of people using you for profit and gain. This gospel, though, is for you, you unloved, unseen, oppressed girl. The third story that we see there is the jailer. The jailer, again, was likely a a former Roman soldier, um, as this would have been a very common practice of the day. But we also can see that he was a very proud man. In verse 27, we can see how seriously he took his job. 
Uh, when he thought that Paul and Silas had escaped, he knew that he'd be executing, uh, executed for allowing them to get away. I mean, we, we're talking about a brutal shame and honor culture where mercy and grace were not virtues. So to avoid the shame of execution, he prepares to kill himself instead. Now commentators, biblical commentators, they note some really interesting things about the story of Paul and Silas. And one of the things that's highlighted is that it's, it's noteworthy that Paul and Silas don't actually escape from prison here. The reason that's interesting is because the last time we saw anything similar was actually back in Acts 12. Back in Acts 12, Peter was freed from prison by an angel. And what you see in that story is Peter's shackles come off and he walks out of the prison. However, here, we don't have an angel, but rather we have an earthquake that presumably does two things. Again, biblical commentators looking at the story note that the shackles would have likely been anchored into the wall and that when the earthquake came, the chains would have likely come out from the wall, but they still would have been left attached to Paul and Silas's wrists. And then also, the earthquake would have likely um, caused the door hinges to dismantle and the doors would have fallen off. And this, this would make sense. Structurally, the building's going to start to fall apart as a result of the earthquake. Of course, on top of that, though, the earthquake was also super loud and it wakes up the guard. I mean, why did God do it this way? For Peter, it was real stealth-like, real quiet. For Paul and Silas, the whole building shakes. Why not just release them the way that God had done with Peter previously? The reason is that God knew exactly what this jailer needed. He knew what this shame-filled jailer was going to need. He was going to need a tangible experience of God's mercy and grace. And if Paul and Silas had just snuck out, he never would have gotten to experience that mercy and that grace through them. I mean, and isn't that ultimately what all of us want when we feel weighed down by shame? Right? We want to know that God has not abandoned us. We want to know that His mercy and His grace are there for us. And Paul and Silas remain in the cell and then present the gospel to this man. And in doing so, God's goodness was on display in a very tangible form. Why? Because God is saying to this jailer, the gospel is for you, you shame-filled, fearful jailer. You know, the gospel is for all kinds of people. It's for the rich and the powerful. It's for the oppressed. It's for the fearful. It's for the shame-filled. Filled. It is a message for all the peoples of the world. It is a message for all people from a variety of different experiences and cultural backgrounds. This is all true. And this is what makes the gospel so powerful. It is for everyone. But in case you don't fully connect those dots... Yes, the gospel's for all peoples. Yes, the, go the gospel's for all kinds of people. But my friends, the gospel is not just for people out there. The gospel is also very much for you. The gospel has the power to transform you in a powerful kind of way. You know, I've said, I've said a lot about the gospel. But I actually haven't fully articulated what I mean by the gospel when I'm talking about it in this way. 
What is the message that Paul and Silas have been stating that changed these people's lives? Now, what is the message that has produced a 2,000-year movement that continues today, and why does any of it matter today? Well, one of the many different ways that we can define the gospel uh, for the individual is from Romans 1. Paul puts it this way, famously. He says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, it's nice to say that the gospel can be woven into all cultures. It's nice to say the gospel gives hope to all different types of people. But what makes the gospel life-changing is not just its broad appeal, but ultimately that the gospel message is unstoppable because it's the power of God unto salvation. And who can stop the power of God? And that salvation is for, in verse uh, 31 of Romans uh, 1 says, it's for all those who believe in Jesus Christ. You know, for Lydia, the power of God that brought salvation meant salvation from her striving for validation and success and her religious efforts. Because for her, the gospel was that Jesus lived this perfect life for her. One that she could not achieve on her own. This is the power of God for salvation. To the enslaved girl, the power of God that brings salvation meant hope. That one day, oppression would be crushed. For Jesus is matchlessly powerful and will one day crush the head of all oppressions. For her, believing in this Jesus was the power of God that brought salvation. For the jailer, the power of God that brought salvation meant salvation from the crushing weight of failure. For Jesus went to the cross to deal with the consequences of his failure. The death required for his failure was no longer his. Rather, Jesus took the penalty of death upon himself. This was the power of God that brings salvation as he trusted in Jesus. And Redeemer East Harlem, every person here, the power of God that brings salvation is also for you. And I wonder, whose story do you resonate with? Do you resonate with the, the successful Lydia the one more successful than maybe could have even been imagined. Yet all the success, all the striving has not satisfied the longing that you have within you. Or maybe also like Lydia, are you a spiritual seeker striving with religious fervor to try to figure out what truth is? If that's you, the gospel is for you. Rest and trust in Jesus. Maybe you resonate with the enslaved girl. I mean, do you resonate with being spiritually tormented or maybe even physically oppressed? Do you feel abused or used or unloved like no one sees you? You know, it reminds me of a story in the Old Testament, the Old Testament story of, of Hagar. She was a woman who was abused and rejected and abandoned. And in her pain, you remember the name that God gave to her? Or, I'm sorry, the name that she gave to God, rather. She called God the one who sees me. You know, if you feel unseen, unloved, and even oppressed, know that he sees you. The gospel is for you. Cry out to Jesus. Or maybe you're like the jailer. Have you never experienced grace and mercy 
Is your life defined by your mistakes or your obsession with meeting the expectations of other people? Would you rather die than face the shame of failure? God in Christ is meeting you with grace and compassion. He's not abandoning you to the consequences of your failure. For on the cross, Jesus takes all of our failures and sins upon himself. This is the gospel for you. Bring those failures to him. I didn't have space to print out the whole passage, but there's one final challenge I want to put in front of us. You know, uh, after Lydia's conversion in, in verse 15, it says that her whole household was baptized. Uh, after the enslaved girl was freed, the town went into an uproar because the testimony of what happened spread like wildfire. And the jailer who came to faith, in verse 34, it tells us that his whole household came to faith. Why is that important? Because if you are a Christian, the gospel is for you. And it is given to you, not just for your own sake. It is also given to you that you might make that gospel known to everyone else in need of that same message. What makes the gospel so powerful is that one person's conversion often becomes the foundation for another person's personal conversion. I mean, one of the reasons God has made you aware of the work of Jesus is so that you may now help someone else become aware of the work of Jesus. And so I wonder, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted in this work of Jesus, not only do I want you to be reminded of that work today, but I also want you to think, do I know Lydia? Do I know an enslaved girl? Do I know a jailer? Do I know someone similar? Someone in need of that Paul and Silas moment. Someone that's going to bring the hope of the gospel to them. Do you know someone like that? And do we see our own relationship with Jesus as the foundation for us to now bring others to experience the same? So, two things. Remember that the gospel is for you. All peoples, all people, and for you. And never forget that as we are given that gift of mercy and grace, we have now the opportunity to share that mercy and grace with a world that's in need of it. May the Spirit of God help us accomplish that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the work of your Son. It's a profound, profound work. Far reaches, many different uh, implications. Lord, we thank you that your message is not a message that is bound by any culture or people group, but rather your message is one that transcends all of those things. We thank you that your gospel is not just for particular kinds of people. The gospel is not for those who have it all together, those who are powerful or wealthy. But God, the gospel is for every type of person, regardless of experience or background. You are calling people to yourself. And Lord, we do thank you that this gospel is for each of us individually. Meet us right now by the power of your Spirit. For those of us who have trusted in this work, would you remind us of what you have accomplished on our behalf? For those that are here who maybe have not yet experienced this profound mercy and grace found in Jesus, God, would your Spirit bring them to a place today of trusting in him.
Lord, we thank You for Your Gospel. We thank You for the transformation that it provides. In Jesus' name, Amen. You know, one of the ways that we believe that the Lord 